Open your Bibles up to uh, Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, we're returning to a message we started last week called My Brother's Keeper. And you'll remember if you were here last week that I uh, began that message with, uh, with kind of an extended uh, parable. Some wondered if that story were true, and that story uh, is not true in the life of any one person that I'm aware of. Unfortunately, though, it is true in the sense that it was a composite of many people that I have known in the church in the 35 years or so that I have been part of uh, the people of God. And so, uh, so I told you that story because I think it engages in the topic that we have before us. We're in the midst of a series about uh, life together in the community of believers. This series is uh, drawn here from Matthew chapters 17 through uh, 19, and it's really a series of lessons that, uh, that Matthew records for us, taught by Jesus in the final six months of his public ministry as he and his disciples were making their southern approach to Jerusalem from which he would suffer and die. And there were a number of, of uh, things that came up along the way that, uh, that Jesus addressed, and Matthew records for us uh, some of these in particular because they are so critical for what it means to live together in community. You remember in chapter 16, Jesus first introduces the reality of the church. That is the first time in his, in his ministry, indeed it is the first time in the scriptures, that the concept of the church is introduced as a reality among the people of God, that God is doing something new. And uh, the disciples are going to be the foundation for that church, Jesus Christ himself, the, uh, the cornerstone, Ephesians 2.20 now, the problem is that these disciples are, uh, boy, you wouldn't, you know, you want to be really uh, suspect about building a foundation on these guys at this point because they are really flawed characters. And uh, there is not much time for them to kind of get it together. They have been walking with Christ for about three years for some of them. They have heard the lessons repeated over and over again, and yet they are still very much caught up in the things of this world in terms of status and privilege and priority and being served rather than serving others and what it means to live together as brother and sister in, in the community of the people of God. And so it is just essential for Jesus to drive these lessons home for them. There is not much time and he will depart and of course the entire missionary enterprise rests on them. And so uh, these lessons are helpful lessons. It's, they're essential for them, and they are, they are helpful and even essential for us. The question about my brother's keeper is a question that uh, just uh, goes over and over again through the Scriptures. It is, it is a question that was originally asked, I, I think uh, somewhat cynically, by a Cain in Genesis chapter 4 after he had, had killed his brother Abel. And God doesn't directly answer that question to him there, but the God's answer to that question is found throughout the pages of Scripture, and it screams out to us. The answer to the question of, am I my brother's keeper, is yes, you are. You are my keeper. I am yours. You are each other's keeper. We are in community together. We may not recognize the depth and extent of that community, but we are in community together. We have been placed into one body, the body of Christ, through the baptism of the Spirit of God. And that universal body of Christ finds its local representation here for us at Foothill Bible Church. And so it is a very significant thing to be part of this church. This is not just a place to come on Sunday morning. This is not a place to, like a restaurant where one would come and merely sample the wares, taste the food, and make their decision whether they want to ever come back again and give us a good review on Yelp. We are in a community together, good, bad, and indifferent. And we need to, we need to grow together in Christ. We need to learn how to live together in Christ. We need to learn to love one another. We need to, to externalize the, the reality that the Spirit has put within our hearts. And so the lessons in the prior weeks and in the second part of this lesson this morning and lessons to come are just critically important, important in doing that. And so we're looking at uh, Genesis chapter 18 beginning in verse 6. 
Let me read it, though, beginning in verse 1 to get a running start at it. And we will take it all the way through verse 14 this morning. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called the child to himself and set him before them. And he said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and to be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. The lesson that Jesus introduces here or teaches here is, is introduced or brought on by a dispute among the disciples themselves as to which of them is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. There is a presumption that they all share that they are all great in the kingdom of heaven. The question they're trying to resolve is which one of them is, is absolute top dog? Who's number one? Who's king of the hill? Who's the one who stands out above all the other standouts? And they can't resolve it, and they can't resolve it peacefully, and discussions like that could never be resolved peacefully because they don't originate from the God of peace. They originate out of the pit of hell. But they are having this discussion, and as you might expect, it turns into a dispute, an argument. And they continue in that argument to the place where they finally just stop talking. Later, Jesus approaches them, they or he to, they to him in, in the house in Capernaum, I think Peter's house, and Jesus challenges them and says, what were you talking about while we were journeying on our way here to Capernaum? And they don't want to talk about it, they're embarrassed by it. And that brings Jesus to, uh, to teach them this lesson where he calls a child, verse 2, to himself, an object lesson, as we have explained to you over and over again, that the child in this, in this time period is a person of no status. This is a person whose opinions do not count. This is a person that nobody consults to decide what they want. This is a person who is told what they are to do, and they do it. They are to be seen and not heard, and most of the time not even seen. And so Jesus brings this child as this object lesson to them, and he says to them, listen, a child is a child because that's just what they are. You must become like a child. That is, you must give up your notion of status, and you must assume the posture of one who doesn't count, one who is a servant of all, one who is a slave of all. This is what it means to enter the kingdom of heaven, let alone be great among it. Jesus goes on to say that these children, and he's passing from the child and talking about disciples, he says, one who receives the disciple receives me. That is, I, a disciple uh, bears the image of his Savior, and so to receive the disciple is to receive the Savior, to refuse the disciple is to refuse the Savior. 
And so we are looking at verses 6, that was 1 to 5 in a quick review. We are looking in verses 6 to 14 and the second part here this morning. And we said here in 6 to 14 there are four statements. Four statements regarding our community responsibility as we live out the Christian life together here at Foothill. And the first of those statements is here in verse 6, do not damage a disciple. It is the, it is the opposite of the positive statement in verse 5, whoever receives one such child, that is whoever receives a disciple in my name receives me. In contradiction to that, whoever causes one of these little ones, that is a disciple who believes in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. We said the principle here is that we are not to damage a disciple. We are not to damage a disciple. This is the first important statement with regard to living in community together. And we noted last time the, the uh, strong language that Jesus uses all through this section. This is the kind of language that causes one to sit up and take notice, or ought to. When he starts talking about heavy millstones and being drowned, when he starts talking about hacking off parts of your body and gouging out uh, parts of your body, and in order to avoid the fires of hell, we know he is talking about serious stuff. This is not optional. This is not, uh, this is not an advanced elective in Christianity that only a few people take. This is what it means. In fact, he says earlier, not to live like this is to be in danger of not entering that kingdom at all. So this is life and death stuff. He says, do not damage a disciple. That is, do not cause one to stumble, to stumble. We looked at the word stumble, and, and I won't relook at all of that with you again, but just to say this, that it, to, in this context, it is talking about causing another disciple to be damaged in their relationship to Christ and his church in such a way that they are in danger of walking away from that church altogether. So it is a very serious, very, very serious thing. It is to, it is to, to uh, behave towards another disciple in such a way that you put them in danger of falling out of the race altogether. And Jesus says it is so serious, you would be better off than doing that. You would be better off to have a, a, a one-ton stone tied around your neck and to be dropped over the side of the boat into the depth of the Marianas Trench. It is a very, very strong statement. It would, be a, it would be a dramatic death. It would be a decisive death. It would be a, a death that would be terrifying, I think, to anyone. And he says, you'd be better off to welcome that reality than you would be to damage another disciple in such a way that they are in danger of walking away from the faith. So do not damage a disciple. That's the first statement about community responsibility that we have with one another. The second is that we are to keep out worldliness, verse 7. Keep out worldliness. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. Jesus says we live in a world, a cosmos, in, in rebellion against God, in which there are many, many stumbling blocks that can cause disciples to, to be damaged in their walk of faith. That's just the reality of living in a broken world. But we as believers are not to be contributing to that woeful reality. We are not to be the ones who actualize the reality that the world is in opposition to the disciples of Christ. That is, we are not to, to bring worldliness into the church in such a way that it, dis, that it causes our brothers to stumble. And we looked last time at a whole long list of worldliness. And we called them the respectable sins, the, the kinds of sins that, uh, that often occur, unfortunately, among God's people and should never be, but sins that we tend to overlook, sins that we tend to attribute to our own weakness or foibles or the fact that we're, you know, we didn't get enough of sleep or we haven't had enough to eat or we have a, a temper that is brought on by our ethnic uh, background or colors of our hair. Or, I mean, there are all kinds of ways that we excuse such things, and they are not to be excused. In fact, they are not to be practiced at all. 
not to be practiced at all. A great woe of judgment upon those who bring such things into the church. Keep worldliness out of the church. And that takes us to the third lesson that we looked at for last time, the third statement, and it was get serious about your sin. If we are to be to, to, uh, not damaging one another, and if we are to, to keep worldliness out of this local fellowship, then, then we have to get serious about our sin. We can't trifle with it. It is not something that we can just excuse, but it's something we need to deal seriously with. And Jesus, uh, the, the language here, when he says, you're, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, he is talking here about uh, a repetitive action. Those things that, that are keeping, the, you know, that worldliness that is part of my character, part of your character, that are, that are causing both you and others to stumble. So he's not talking about a kind of a one-time event. He's talking about a character a flaw that is continuing to manifest itself. So if it's your tongue, then we go to James and we talk about the tongue, right? And the source of what comes out of the tongue. And so often it's a vent pipe for hell. And he says if your tongue is bringing worldliness into the church, you need to deal with it. If it's your temper that's bringing worldliness into the church, you need to deal with it. If it's your, if it's that, that you're, uh, that you're speaking against others or, or withholding yourself from others. Whatever the kinds of things it might be, you need to deal with it. You need to get serious about it. And notice the, how, he's, how serious we have to get. He talks about cutting off hands. He talks about gouging out eyes. Now, he's not literally saying that these things are what you must do if it were only so easy. If it were only so easy. If we could walk in godliness by merely severing a hand... It would be the best deal going. But it's not so. It's not so. The source of sin is the heart. And we need heart surgery. And the only one that does heart surgery is the Spirit of God. So he's using this, this uh, intentional hyperbolic language here to, to just accentuate the reality that we're not to be fooling around with this stuff and we're not to be to just passing it off and just saying that's who we are, we're never going to change. What he's saying is that these kinds of worldly sins that come in and destroy a people of God and tear a, a local fellowship apart are so, so serious. They have to be dealt with. They have to be dealt with. So get serious about your sin. You remember I gave you a quote last time by uh, John Owen, the great uh, Puritan pastor who said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. There is no peace, there is no truce that we can make with sin. We must be constantly attacking it because it is constantly attacking us. Verses 8 and 9, I said this last time, but I'll remind it to you again. They are, they are expressed in the second person singular. That is that they are speaking to us individually. They're speaking to us individually. And the reason they, they do that is because each of us needs to work out our own application of these important truths. There is, there is no generic application here. Whatever it is in your life, he says. Whatever it is in my life, not, not whatever it is in my friend's life or my children's life or my spouse's wife or, or whatever. It's whatever it is in my life I need to deal with. And whatever it is in your life you need to deal with. And the Spirit of God working through his word will make that very, very plain to us. So get serious with your sin. And that takes us to the fourth statement for this morning, and that's verses 10 through 14, and it's this. Become personally involved. Become personally involved. Do not damage a disciple. Keep out worldliness. Get serious with your sin. And, and you could almost say, well, okay, I, you know, like the, the rich young ruler who came to Jesus. Okay, well, I, you know, I've not damaged anybody, and, and I'm not bringing worldliness into the church, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm dealing with my own sin, so I guess I'm okay. And he would say, hey, you know, that's wonderful. That's wonderful that you've got one, two, and three under control. 
although one would wonder whether you really do. But number four is going to catch you. Number four is going to catch you because we are not islands. It's not just about me and Jesus. There are, there are, we are together in a body. And so it's about you and Jesus and, and me and Jesus and, and us and Jesus. We need to become personally involved. Verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. So Jesus is kind of circling back around again. And this, this expression, little ones, is, a, is a, an expression that he has used and introduced here to speak of a disciple. So see to it that you do not despise another disciple. For I say to you that there are angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus says, see that. It's a, it's a strong imperative here, a very strong command. And it is a plural command. It is, it is given to all of us. See that we all do not despise other disciples. For I say to you, there are angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father. Now, in the context here, to despise one another or another disciple is to look down on them. It is to count them of no importance. It is to think them irrelevant. And Paul talks about that kind of, of sinful behavior and attitude in his letter to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're there in 1 Corinthians 12 and beginning in verse 14 and running through verse 26, you remember. He uses the analogy of the illustration of the human body with its various parts. And he says all of the parts of the body are essential. There aren't parts that, are, that you can just indiscriminately get rid of or, 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 you know, be done with them, that you don't need them. And even those parts that maybe don't show the best are sometimes the most important Parts. And so he uses that analogy to speak to the church and he says, we are all part of that one body. And so we are all necessary. You are necessary to Foothill Bible Church. It is not optional. I am necessary to Foothill Bible Church. I am not optional. We are together in this endeavor. Each and every one of us, each and every Part. And so we are to see to it, we are to be very, very careful here that we do not despise one another. Why? Well, he gives the reason. You see it there in the middle of verse 10, the word for. When we see the word for, it is often supplying the reason to the statement which has gone before it. And so it's a good contextual clue for us that, that Jesus is now going to give some reasons why we must not despise one another. And the basic reason is this. We are not to despise one another because each of us is important to God. Okay, that's the basic idea of verses 10 through 14. We'll draw it out in a little more detail for you, but that's the basic idea. I am not to despise you, you are not to despise me, we are not to despise each other because each and every one of us is important to God. You may not understand how important that person sitting next to you in the pew is this morning, but trust me, on the word of God, he tells you that person is exceedingly important to God. And if they are exceedingly important to God, then they are de facto exceedingly important to us. And we must come to that realization, and then we must act upon it. Now, the reality of the statement here is, is illustrated in, in two ways. The importance of each of us, each disciple, each follower of Christ, is illustrated here for us in two ways. First, by the role of the angel, here in verse 10, the angels, we'll talk about it in a minute, and the parable that follows of the shepherd. So we are not to despise one another. Why? Because each of us is important to God. Let me illustrate it for you. Let me illustrate it for you by the role of the angels. Let me illustrate it for you by the parable of the shepherd. And so first, the angels. See to it that you do not despise 
one of these little ones, because, or for, I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now, this is one of those verses that, um, that people will uh, write you emails about, and they'll say, um, so is Jesus teaching here that each and every Christian has a guardian angel around them to, to protect them at all times? Well, uh, I don't know. I don't know. If that were true, this verse would not prove that. This verse does not say that. So, so that may be true and it may not be true. But this verse is, does not impact that question or discussion at all. Because that's not what this verse is about. That's not what this verse is about. Some believe that uh, this verse is talking about angels guarding children. Each child has a guardian angel that, that sort of hovers around them. Again, a, a, a nice thought, but not taught here. Not taught here. Don't know whether it's true. What does the text say? It says, see to it that you do not despise another disciple because I say to you that that disciple's angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now, it's a true statement that, that angels are sent to minister to those who will inherit salvation. In fact, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14 says exactly that. Are they Speaking of angels, not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. Hebrews 1.14. There you go. See, you put Hebrews 1.14 with Matthew chapter 18 and verse 10. And presto, we have a theology of guardian angels. Again, the problem is that that's not what Hebrews 1.14 is talking about. Hebrews 1.14 is speaking about the superiority of Christ and his ministry to the believer. And, he, and the writer to the Hebrews is systematically showing how Christ is greater than anything in this entire universe. Angels included. Furthermore, the writer to the Hebrews does not define for us uh, what this service is that they render to us. He doesn't define it. So we would be reading a lot into the text. A lot. Beloved, nowhere in Scripture is there any suggestion that there is one angel assigned to each believer. There are no verses that, that, that indicate that reality. So we don't know whether it's true or not. True enough in the Old Testament, uh, Daniel, the book of Daniel, the book of Zechariah, they, they imply that there's an angel per nation, but not one angel per individual. Some would point to Acts chapter 12 and verse 15 and the incident involving Peter when he is delivered from the prison. Remember, and he is knocking at the gate and the slave girl says, you know, she runs away and says, Peter's at the gate and they say it's his ghost. And uh, well, if that proves a guardian angel, then what it proves is your guardian angel sounds like you too. And so I'm not so sure about that. So I don't think that's what that verse is talking about. So I come back to the same thing again. Are there a guardian angel assigned to each and every follower of Christ? I don't know. Personally, I doubt it. Personally, I doubt it. The idea being communicated here. Let's get back to this verse. The idea being communicated here is that while on earth, disciples or little ones have no value. And, and, they are, and they are constantly um, being despised, both by the world system and, God forbid, by those uh, dis, uh, or um, misbehaving disciples within the community of faith. But, but they are of such value, they are of such value that, that angels who have constant and personal access to God, represent the people of God before him in some way. 
It's a, it's a, it's a statement about the reality that, that you and I have value before God. Such value that, that angels who, who can, can somehow minister to us and, and, and represent us in some fashion actually can come before the throne of grace. They can walk right into the royal throne room. They see God face to face. Face to face. That means that you and I matter. That you and I matter to God. He will allow these angels into his presence to speak about us and for us. Why are we important to God? Or how do we know we are important to God? The, the role of the angels in being continually before the face of God evidences the importance of each and every disciple. Secondly is the parable. It is the parable, verses 12 to 14. And some of you may wonder, why did you skip over verse 11? So let me just kind of say that quickly. I skipped over verse 11 because verse 11, at least in the New American Standard, they show it in parentheses. I think the ESV doesn't even have it at all, if I'm right. Uh, verse 11 is uh, not in the best of the uh, manuscripts for uh, Matthew's gospel. It is, it is a statement that uh, doesn't belong in Matthew's gospel. It comes from Luke chapter 19 and verse 10 and has been brought into Matthew's gospel by a scribe somewhere along the way. I mean, what it says is true, to be sure. But it just is not part of Matthew's original record. So Matthew's account continues from verse 10 to what we call verse 12. And the parable here. What do you think? He starts. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep, and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go and search for the one that is straying? Now, the point of this parable is to reveal the heart of God. This is a parable designed to reveal the heart of God. And it is a parable that is similar to the parable told in Luke 15. And that shouldn't surprise us. Jesus was an itinerant preacher. Itinerant preachers mean that they move from place to place and they can deliver the same sermons over and over again. They get to use the same illustrations in more than one context. One of the downsides of being in the same pulpit week after week after week is you've got to come up with new material or the people out there begin to say it back to you before you even open your mouth. So Jesus, when he had a good illustration, a good parable, would use it more than once and the parable here of the shepherd and the sheep is one he uses more than once. So the Luke 15 speaks of the recovery of an unsaved person. Here in Matthew chapter 18, the parable speaks of the recovery of an errant disciple. Of an errant disciple. And so it is the same basic parable, it's just used in a different context. Now the parable is constructed in such a way that a positive answer is expected. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go and search for the one that is straying? Yes, obviously. That's how we're supposed to approach this parable. Yes, obviously, we would do that. Why? Because the shepherd would do that. The shepherd would leave his 99 sheep and he would go off in search of the one that is missing and in mortal danger. That's what a shepherd would do. Why? Why would a shepherd do that? The answer is simple enough. It's because each and every sheep is important to him. It's important to him. He cares about each and every sheep. Now that may be hard for you and I. Uh, we have no experience in being shepherds. And so it would be easy for us to take uh, more of a sort of a worldly calculation on this and say, yeah, it's 1% of the flock. You know, you got certain shrinkage and loss and uh, just let it go. You know, that's kind of the businessman's approach, right? You, you figure out your profit margin. You figure out, you know, a certain amount of towels in the hotel are going to get stolen every year. And, you know, it's just loss and shrink. And, and what's the big deal? 
But that's not how a shepherd approaches it. A shepherd doesn't say, hey, it's only, you know, one sheep out of 100, 1%, still got 99. Why would I bother going to do all of that? It's dangerous. It's a lot of hard work. What if I don't find him? What if he doesn't want to come back? I mean, he just goes on and on. Just forget him. Just forget him, stupid sheep anyway, right? <laughs> right? I'm feeding them. I'm watering them, taking care of them, and it wanders off. Let it go. Let it go. What's the big deal? Well, here's the big deal. That's not how God does math. That's not how God does it. That's not how the chief shepherd of our soul does math. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that he doesn't just say to me during some of those days in my life where I'm kind of wandering off and say, hey, stupid sheep. You know, hey, the life is here. If you wander off, tough. Leaves the 99 and goes and gets the one. Not only that, look at verse 13. If it turns out that he finds it, meaning you don't always find it. If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. Again, that, that is sort of counterintuitive to us. The, the recovery of one who has strayed uh, produces such joy. And in the context here, a joy greater than the, than the flock that didn't wander away. And again, beloved, Jesus is telling this parable to, to illustrate something about the heart of God. This is the heart of God. God rejoices. In one who has been wandering, who is recovered. Why? Because each and every disciple is important to him. He sent his son to die to redeem each and every one of his children. So they are important to him. This is the heart of God. And how different it is than church as most of us know it. One of the prevailing notions in, in the church, and I think it's a real detriment to, to spiritual health and, and the welfare of the local body, is the, is the idea that the, that the spiritual care and concern for the flock of God is the responsibility of the pastor. That it's his responsibility. It's his exclusive territory. That's the kind of idea that, that we come to, 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 to the church, we come to church, even that is, a, is an idea that's wrong at so many levels, but we, we come to church and we, and we, we sit and we listen and, and we put money in the plate and we, and we serve where there's a need in order to keep the cogs of the wheel moving. But, but all of that, all that stuff about, about caring for people, we pay somebody to do that. I mean, that's why we hired you. Well, most people aren't that crass to say it that way. But that notion is, is very much woven into the fabric of the evangelical church in America. Very much. And if it's more than one guy, then we hire another guy to help him. And we just keep hiring people to do this work. It's destructive. It's destructive. I mean, in its most destructive forms, it, 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 it turns the pastor into a full-time counselor. It turns the pastor into the hospital and home visitation expert. All right, if he doesn't come to see me in the hospital, I haven't been visited. It turns the pastor into the event planner, the social coordinator for the church. A pastor caught in this kind of a trap. How will he study the word of God? 
How will he have time to teach the word of God? If all the time is, is spent doing these things. Now, there's another extreme. Right? There are two ditches on the side of the road. We don't want to you know, keep between the ditches. We don't want to fall in either one. I mean, the ditch on the other side of the road is, is, a, is the pastor who is so remote and, and such an academician that, that he spends his entire week locked in his office studying, right? He just, he just sort of shows up behind the pulpit on, on Sunday morning. He delivers the, his shtick, and then he, then he turns and he leaves. That's equally devastating, equally unhealthy, equally a, 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 an unbalanced caricature of what it means to be a, a shepherd among the people of God. But beloved, this passage is, is not about me in, a, in that sense. I mean, it is because I'm part of you. <laughs> but this is not a passage for, for me or the elders about how to, 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 to care and, and shepherd the flock of God. You've got to go to 1 Peter 5 if you want to look for serious instruction there. This is, a, this is a passage about us. This is, a, this is a passage about our corporate responsibilities. This is a passage in the context of, of that we are part of one another. This is a passage about the reality that that. I need you and, and you need me and, and we need each other and, and we're all in this together and every one of us is important and valuable to God and to each other. We are the shepherds in this parable. We are the shepherds. We are the ones who need to care enough to leave the 99 and, and to go after the one that is straying. One that has wandered away. And to, and to diligently seek them out and, and bring them back to the fold. We are the ones who, who can and should rejoice when one who, who has been straying has been, has been sought and rescued and brought back. We are to rejoice together in that reality. We cannot we dare not, we must not sit back with an attitude of leave it to the professionals. Let your eye drop down on the page a little bit. Look at the verses that follow verse 14. I'm going to give you a really uh, amazing insight here. Verse 15 follows verse 14. It's my first insight. Verse 15 uh, through verse 20 is a section of Matthew 18 that most, or, yeah, most people are afraid of. This is a section we call church discipline. That's a section about kicking people out of the church. And we, we have loaded so much ecclesiastical baggage and trappings. We have lost the simplicity of the message and the context in which it occurs Church discipline, I'm not even in love with that terminology. It is the redemptive seeking of a fellow believer who has been laid aside because of sin. It is, it is the procedure that has been laid out by our Savior for us in community together, whereby we might fulfill Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. To go to the one who has been trapped in sin and has been laid aside. This is how it's done. We have a personal responsibility to seek out a sheep that has gone astray, that has wandered from the foal. Now, when we were gone last fall, Pastor Vince preached a five-part series called Evangelizing the Saved evangelizing the saved. And he worked through this passage, verses 15 through 20, as well as several others. If you did not hear that series for whatever reasons, you need to go hear that series. I'm not going to try to re-preach his series. I'd only ruin it. It was really well done. 
And so if you've not heard those messages, there are five of them, and they, they're in October of 2013. You can find them on our website. You can, you can download them. You can listen to them to audio. You can watch them in video. But you need, to, you need to do it. If you weren't here, you weren't part of the church yet, you were out of town, you were sick, whatever the reasons, you missed any or all of those sermons, I don't know any other stronger way to say it is go back and listen. Go back and listen. Because it is the, it is the application of the truth that we're talking about right here in this passage. It is how to apply that truth. What are you going to do about those who wander away? Will you lovingly pursue them or will you write them off? Will you just say, you know what, certain losses are acceptable in business. Let them go. People who used to be part of the public meetings of the church, but aren't any longer. Maybe they're sick. Maybe they're sick. But you'd need to find that out, wouldn't we? You'd need to find that out. And, and if they are, then how can you help them? How can you help them if they're sick? If, they, if they're not here, if they're, they're laid aside by sickness, how can you help them? Maybe they're shut in. You can visit them. Maybe they're lonely. You can befriend them. Maybe they're discouraged. You can come alongside and, and, and lovingly point them to the gospel to encourage them. Maybe they're preoccupied with other things in this world and, and so they need to be gently confronted with the reality that they have lost their, their focus. Maybe they're caught in the snare of sin and the Spirit of Galatians 6.1, we need to come alongside them and, and restore them. Maybe they're offended. And you can be the agent of reconciliation. You can, you can help bring the parties together and resolve the offense. Beloved, nearly every month we have people stand up here and, and join this local fellowship. And they stand up here and they say they want to be part of this church. And, and they want to be part of this church because they list many reasons. But the common reasons are, you know, the word of God is taught here. And the people love one another here. And they're, and they're serving Christ here. And, they're, and they care about the lost. And they're involved in world mission. And they want to be part of this. And frequently we'll, we'll say something like, so, so, you know, are you going to come alongside them? Are you going to support them? Are you going to be you know, in community together with them. And, and people say, amen. And every month people melt away. Every month people melt away. They stop coming. Oh, the reasons are many. Some move to a different church. Some stop going to church altogether. They just sort of melt away. Little notice, little genuine concern. Here, gone. Still got 99. Still got 99. Now this is an American Christian, evangelical Christian problem. I acknowledge that. But just because we are, we are normal, it doesn't make it good. It doesn't make it good. Whose responsibility is it? Whose responsibility is it to, to protect and preserve the spiritual health of the members of this congregation? That's the question. Whose responsibility is it? Is it mine? Is it yours? Is it theirs? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. It is my responsibility. 
It is your responsibility. It is their responsibility to walk in close fellowship with their Savior. But just because it's my responsibility and their responsibility, you can't evade where it's your responsibility. We're in this together. We're, we're part of a, of a community together. Now, a question that would come up, I think, often is, well, how far do you go in, in pursuing somebody that doesn't come anymore? And by the way, how, how do I know if somebody's not coming anymore? Well, the first thing you got to do is you got to come yourself. <laughs> right? I mean, if your attendance is sporadic, then how will you know that anybody else's attendance is sporadic? So you got to be here. And you, and you got to be involved. And you got to be looking around. You got to be paying attention. It should be easy to do because most of you sit in the same seat every Sunday. Right? I can pretty much, if I had a, a little seating chart, you know, I could start to do pretty good filling in names. So you know, or you should, are they here or not? And we begin with that, just noticing. Well, the next thing that it would do it would be requiring you to do something very scary, which is pick up the telephone and call them. Oh, I can't do that. That is so intrusive. That is so, that is so cult-like. Hey, I noticed you weren't in church. You know, we got to respect people's privacy and their individuality. And, and who are you to tell me? That is such a, a, a distorted understanding of the body of Christ. Hey, I didn't see you on Sunday. Is everything okay? Is everything okay? Yeah, you know, we were, got a flat tire. Had a flat tire in the parking lot or my driveway Sunday morning. I, we just couldn't make it. Oh, that's too bad. I, I wish you'd have called me. We would have come and got you. Next time, please call me. Do you need to borrow a car? Can I lend you my car while yours is being repaired? Hey, I, you know, I didn't see you Sunday. Everything okay? I've been sick. I've been really sick. Baby's been sick. We've been sick. Oh, I am so sorry to hear that. Can, can, can we bring you a meal tonight? How can we pray for you? I, I didn't see you. Uh, you know, I haven't seen you for two weeks. You, everything okay? Yeah, we've been on a vacation. Had a great time. You know, went on this cruise, ate all this food, gained 15 pounds. Great, I'm glad you could get away. Can I pray for you, you glutton? I mean, no. Um. <laughs> it, just, it just begins like this, but we don't want to do that. Isn't that crazy? Because if we would just put it on the other end, right? You know, if, if it were, for us, we were sick and somebody were to call and check on us, wouldn't, wouldn't we feel loved? If they were to bring us a meal, wouldn't, wouldn't that be a tangible expression of their care and concern for us? And yet we, we just do not want to violate people's privacy. So it just begins with being here yourself to know whether somebody's not here. Next thing it requires is, in, is inquiring. Checking out. Is, you know, is everything okay? Didn't, didn't see and didn't notice you. Now we don't come anymore. They don't come to that church anymore. Well, have a nice day. <laughs> wow. You sound like you're really hurt. You sound like you're really hurt. Is there, um, is there something I can do? Can I, is there, is there like an individual, a person that has hurt you? Can, can maybe we can arrange a way you can talk to them? They might hang up on me. They might. No, we're going to another church, you know, because uh, we just didn't feel like we fit in here. And 
I mean, there are times when the, when the, the one sheep is not recoverable. That's, that's possible. But if we don't make an effort, we'll never know. We'll never know. And we need to be willing to be bold enough not to just take the first surface answer, you know, and just try to get off the phone as quickly as we can. Whew, did that. Wow. That was uncomfortable. To, to try to, you know, if there's hurt here, is there some way we can resolve this? Can I, can I, can I help you resolve this? Can I, maybe can help you get together with such and such a person or, or whatever. I mean, that's kind of like beginning the whole verse 15 and following part. But instead, beloved, I get it. It's, it's not easy for me to pick up the phone either. Particularly if I've heard like through the grapevine that they hate my guts. But we got to do it because we got to care. Because we've been made one together. And sometimes we may not feel like it. But we don't live our life by feelings. We live our lives by, by the word of God, by, by doing what is right and, and trusting the spirit of God to bring the feelings along after them, right? I mean, anybody who's been married more than 20 minutes, you know, knows that if you're just running this thing on the, on the feeling tank, you're in serious trouble. Love is not a feeling. It's an act of the will. We trust the feelings to follow it. So what's Jesus saying to us here? What is he saying to us in, in this whole thing? Listen, this is what he's saying. He's saying, don't be so focused about where you fall in the pecking order of the kingdom of God. Don't be so concerned about your reputation as to where you stand. Humble your heart. Serve one another. Put off wickedness and worldliness and get it out of the community of believers and love and care for one another. And he'll say over in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, and the night he was betrayed, he says, the world will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. Boy, that message must have stung, by the way, because they had been arguing on the way to the supper about which of them was the greatest. So if there is hope for them, there is hope for me and there is hope for you. So are we our brother's keeper? Are we? We are. And may God in his grace enlarge our capacity to understand and to, and to act on that truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word and Thank you, your spirit uses your word in our lives to, to shape us and form us in the image of Christ. And we are a needy people, oh Lord. You got so much of the world in us. So many things, priorities and values and ways of thinking, they need to be reshaped by the gospel. But Father, rather be discouraged in all of that as if we had to do the reshaping and that task would be impossible and indeed is impossible. Father, you, you have given us the means and mechanism through your word and fellowship of your people, spirit working in our hearts. Father, there's an application point for each and every one of us here and it's unique to us. There's that certain attitude we have or a way we, we approach the body of Christ here, the way we think about it, the way we interact with it, that needs to change. And oh Lord, you know exactly what it is and you know exactly the change that has to occur. And so I pray that you would drive that home to us this week. Lord, I pray that this message would not to quickly pass from our thinking. May we chew on this one. May we turn this one around in our minds. May we recognize the gravity, the things that we've been talking about. 
And Lord, may you do a mighty work in us. I think of the church at Thessalonica, Father, that, that was known throughout. That little teeny church born in persecution and affliction. For which the gospel message sallied forth. And people were talking about them. Oh, Father, we could be a church like that. If we were to give ourselves wholeheartedly to you. May you help us to do that. And Lord, for that one person here this morning, maybe more, who's yet to be part of the body of Christ, still on the outskirts, still on the edges, kind of like a campfire, but, but sitting in the shadows, can, can see the fire, can see the glow on people's faces, but they're still in the shadows. Oh, Lord, will you move in their heart even now? Bring them into the circle. Let them throw themselves upon the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ to receive mercy and grace for the saving of their soul. I ask these things in his name. Amen.